crazy. Goodness. Okay. I see some looks and some elbows over here. I, 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 if you're sitting next to your family, you know, maybe, maybe you're too embarrassed. Or maybe they're so crazy you're scared to put your hand up. How many of you guys know that the crazy, like, you're not the crazy one, it's the other person? Is that you? You're not the crazy one, it's the other person? Anybody here brave enough to say, no, I'm the crazy one and I know it? <laughs> That's good. There's a bunch of you that you're like, I know I'm the crazy one and I bring the crazy. <laughs> That's so funny. You know, we're starting this series and we planned it out because we thought that Thanksgiving and Christmas are all coming up. And, and during that season, a lot of families spend a lot of time together. And so we thought, hey, let's talk about crazy families and how, like, how to help navigate some of, the, some of the hard things or the crazy things that happen in our families. You know, growing up, I remember uh, being a kid, and, and, and Thanksgiving and, and Christmas and the holidays, there was a kid table, and then there was an adult table. How many of you guys had the kid table in your house? Yeah, you got a kid table, yeah. So you have a kid table where the kids sit, and you have the adult table where the, where the adults sit. And when the, the kid table was happening, you know, I would go and I'd sit as a kid, and there'd be like plastic plates and, and, and plastic utensils, or the utensils had the big rubber grips on them, you know, or, or the cups had a, a lid and a straw, or, or maybe like a sippy cup with a valve, so if you knocked it over, you wouldn't cause any kind of a spill, right? So we had these, these, these kid things going on. And then one day, I remember graduating to the adult table. I remember going up, and it's like, woo, it's a real chair. It's, it's, it's full size, you know. And, and, and as a kid, I would sit, and my feet would dangle, you know. And, and, and it, all of a sudden, you have a full-size chair. And, and I would look at the table, and there was a plate, like a real plate, a plate actually that I had never seen before because it only comes out of that cabinet one time per year on that day. And it has the pretty flowered edge with kind of that gold leaf on there. And, and, and it was imported from somewhere else in the country. I remember this. And it was, they called it their fancy china. And it only happened occasionally. And so now I'm sitting as, as maybe not quite a kid, but certainly not yet an adult, at the adult table with, with this plate, which is worth more than my life. And I knew it. <laughs> and then the silverware. I'd never seen so much silverware. There were, there were spoons on spoons, on forks, on knives, and, and they had stretched it out sideways and vertically. I didn't know what to do with all of that stuff. And then there was a cup, a real cup, and a fancy cup, where it had the base and the stem and then the bigger goblet style, and it was glass or, I don't know, crystal or something that was so expensive, also worth twice my life. And, and, and they said it in front of me as a kid, and I was just like, what am I going to, this is the adult table, ooh. This is serious stuff. This is serious stuff. You know, sometimes the adult table can be a little bit intimidating, can it? Especially as a kid, they show up and now you're not making fart jokes with your kid friends at the kid table, right? And you're not making silly jokes over there and, and possibly throwing little chunks of food at each other at the kid table because at the adult table, there's a different tone at the adult table. They talk about adult things. And, they, and then you're, as a kid, are trying to maybe weigh in, but you're kind of scared to weigh in. And, 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 and there's a graduation time where you go from a kid table to an adult table. You know, at the adult table, I learned a few things. I learned that every family has a few elements inside of their family. Every family has this. Every family has love. I grew up in a home that, that I knew that I was loved. Every family has, has love in it. And I learned that, that every family has conflict. 
Every family has conflict in it, right? There's, there's fights and there's disagreements. And, and at the adult table, you got to see a little bit of that conflict. Maybe it was a little bit passive-aggressive or, or maybe it was a little bit undermined or maybe a little bit manipulative. Or, or what, but you see the little snide comments occasionally at the adult table. I also learned that there's a little bit of confusion inside of a family. Some of us have confusion inside of our families, but you have some, some confusion in your family. I also learned that there's frustration inside of a family. There's frustration that, that so-and-so didn't bring what they said they were going to bring. Or why do we always assign the appetizers to the person that always shows up late? <laughs> you know, you know. <laughs> you know there's some frustration sometimes within our families. But you know what is, is most important is that there's some connection inside of our families. You know, we have some love and we have some connection in our families. But in the, between the love and the connection, there's a lot of stuff that wants to mess that up. A lot of stuff that wants to mess that up. You know, I learned that just like your natural family at home, our church family also has those same things. If you show up to church here, my prayer is that you would feel loved when you walk into this building. In fact, I hear the stories all the time that you guys love each other and they feel loved. People feel loved and they feel accepted and people hugging on them and and caring for them. But you know, just like your family at home, sometimes we have a conflict inside of our church family. Sometimes we we don't agree with something that's that's happening inside of our church. We get in conflict sometimes. We have arguments and disagreements. I've learned that as soon as you start putting people into any sort of group, conflicts will arise. If there's two people, there'll be conflicts. I don't know. Sometimes I get in conflict with myself. I don't even need that other person, and I can get into a conflict. So people, sometimes people will leave a church over a minor conflict. They'll leave a church. They're like, this is a church family. They'll leave the church family because, well, somebody looked at them funny. Or, or they, they, I didn't quite, they didn't treat me the way I wanted them to treat me. I always sit in that seat and somebody sat in my seat. I'm out of here. Wait, they don't serve decaf coffee? No, no, we don't. It's called tea. We have tea, okay? We have tea. But you know, like, like people are, you know, you can get really upset about something that seems so minor, right? And we can work these little conflicts into, into big issues. People leave the church because of dirty looks and small comments or the lack of decaf coffee. You know, sometimes people get confused in church. We have confusion in fact, I see it from, from new people occasionally. I actually heard this question the other day. They said, why do people in church have so many questions? I was like, I don't really know. What are you talking about? Well, especially during the music. There's always like somebody who like, has a question. The other day, I saw a guy and he had two questions. He had two questions in church and I didn't understand. But you know, there's some confusion sometimes. Like, like why, why are there some people that, that sway and, and they maybe express themselves more during the music and they, they seem maybe a little bit more free? And you know what? They're worshiping God. And it's okay. You can sit there and be stiff. You can sit in the chair and be quiet if you want to, and nobody's going to judge you. But sometimes there's confusion on on, on little things, right? There's confusion on on, on stuff inside of a church. And there's the frustration. Has anybody ever been frustrated in church? I have. Anybody else? No, like eight of you. That's good. We have a great church. I'll just skip that point. So we have connection. 
We have connection inside of our church. I'm literally just going to skip it. So we have connection inside of our church. We feel like we want people to get connected. There's real relationships that happen inside of our church. And so just like your home life, you, you, in your home family unit, you see these, these same elements. Inside of a church family, you see these same elements. And, and in fact, we're going to look and see how even Jesus in the Bible had some of these same elements happening amongst his friends and his family. And so I believe that there's some biblical truths today that we're going to look at that show how Jesus handled some of the conflicts going on inside of his family and how that's going to relate to, how, to our church family and to your natural family. Now, this is a four-week series, so I'm not going to cover everything in week one. I'm just going to give you a little teaser, and you're going to walk out the door feeling like, yeah, he didn't quite cover everything. I didn't. You, you got to come back and, and to get the whole thing. And so it's, it, I'm telling you, it's, it's going to be a good series. I really, I really think that we're going to get a lot out of this. And so here's the thing is that we sometimes, as believers, will feel like there's a kid table and an adult table even within God and in God's kingdom, even within the church, even within things that we do. There's, there's kind of this Christian myth that goes around um, that says, like, only successful people can sit at the adult table with God. But that's actually not true because God doesn't have a kid table. He only has the adult table. And he invites you to sit at this adult table. But, but I'm not successful enough to, to sit there. Like, you don't, Matt, Pastor Matt, if you saw me, if you knew what I was doing, if you knew what was happening to me midweek, um, there's no way that I would be invited to sit at this table with, with Jesus. There's no way I could be in relationship with, with God because... Yeah, <laughs> You don't even know what's happened, right? No, it's okay. I, don't, you might, I might not know what's happened in your life. But, but what I do know is that Jesus has invited you to sit at the table. And I want you to know this, that every single one of us have unsuccessful spiritual moments. We do. Last Sunday night, when the, when the Broncos lost to the Raiders, I had a very unsuccessful spiritual moment. It lasted a little ways. Yeah, I mean, I, if you don't know me, I'm a huge Denver Bronco fan, and they lost, and so unsuccessful spiritual moment. I was driving down the road, and some idiot driver, I had an unsuccess, I just had another one, but an unsuccessful <laughs> spiritual moment when this guy's cutting me off, and I'm like, what are you doing? There's clearly laws in this country. What's wrong with you? You know, and, and, but we have the unsuccessful, when your cell phone drops coverage, you have an unsuccess, unsuccessful spiritual moment. But those unsuccessful spiritual moments, it's funny to laugh about those, but there's real ones too within your family. You have a fight, you, you, your kid does something that you start get reacting to, and all of a sudden you get upset and you behave in an unsuccessful moment. I've learned something, that, that being a follower of Christ, every story is not a success story, but every story is a love story. Every story is not a success story, but every story is a love story. I wish I could tell you that if you put your faith in Jesus, it's going to be rainbows and unicorns and lollipops and sunshine and butterflies, and everything's going to go your way. You're going to wake up in the morning, and there's going to be an extra zero or two or maybe some commas in your bank account. But, but that's just not how it works. But see, every story is not necessarily a success story by the world's standards. But every story is a love story because God loves each and every one of us. So Jesus had kind of a crazy crew. He, he had 
some disciples that he had gathered around him. Some of them were kind of a blue-collar working guys. Some of them were a little more white-collar, office-type guys, more of an indoor guy rather than an outdoor guy. He had fishermen, which were kind of rough around the edges, you know, like a sailor. And so you have the, the rough around the edges, and then you also have these guys who are clean-cut and, and have political influence and, and social influence. And so in Matthew chapter 10, in the first couple of verses, there is an outline, there's a list of, of his disciples. And so the names of the 12 apostles are these. It says, first it was um, Simon, who was called Peter. You've heard of him. Um, if you die and you go to the pearly gates, Peter is it there at the gates. Um, you've heard of him. And his brother Andrew, his, um, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother. And if we keep going to verse 3, um, it says that Philip and Barth- Bartholomew, I-, I wanted to name our kid that, but got vetoed. So Philip and Bartholomew, uh, Thomas, and, and Matthew, the tax collector, the first person that they list his occupation. Um, everybody else, they didn't, they were like some fishermen and some other blue-collar guys, but all of a sudden they list Matthew's um, occupation. So Matthew, the tax collector. So James, the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus, Simon, the zealot, uh, interesting description, and, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed Jesus. And so Judas, you guys have heard of Judas, he's pretty famous, too, for all the wrong reasons, really. But, uh, so he's in the mix as well. You know, Jesus had this crazy group of guys, and, and I learned that they didn't get an opportunity to sit at the table because of their success. They didn't get to sit at the table because of how good they are. They had a seat at the table because they were loved. They, were sit, they had a seat at the table because they were loved. Matthew, the tax collector. Now, my name is Matthew, so, but I'm not a tax collector. But Matthew, the tax collector, here's the thing about tax collectors in that day. They were kind of like the black sheep. How many guys, do you guys have a black sheep in your family? Like you have somebody? Yeah, you got some, I see some hands going to be, there's that one person in your family that's like the black sheep. They're, they're kind of the troublemaker, maybe the rebellious one, or, or maybe you're the black sheep. Matthew, the tax collector, was, was kind of like a, a black sheep in, in society. He was one that people actually looked down upon and, and despised. He was, he was um, one that would actually uh, fleece people money. So he would, he would say in the name of collecting taxes, he would add a little bit extra money to it, and he would keep the overages, and that's how he made his money. So he would go to his friends and his relatives and and he would go to people that he maybe didn't even know that well. But you see, as a friend and a relative, you can't disclose how much money you're making to your brother who's a tax collector. You can't be like, bro, awesome, I totally killed it this week. I made a ton of money. And he's like, that's so great. <laughs> pay it up, buddy. You know, time to pay your taxes. And so it creates for an awkward family dynamic at best, right? So now you got the family, like, you got the tension inside the family with somebody like Matthew, the tax collector, in fact, it was kind of a common understanding that the tax collectors of the day would put their greed for money above the value of their relationships. So they had their own agenda in talking with people. Have you ever had that conversation with somebody that the whole time you're talking with them, you know that there's like a spin, there's an agenda, they're trying to get to something, and you're, you can tell they're fishing for something, and, and I could imagine talking to someone like a tax collector in that day 
fishing, like, you know, man, I can't tell them too much. You have to, like, poor mouth it. You know, you got to talk like, oh, man, I'm not sure how I'm going to pay my bills. And, you know, really you got wads of cash, but you, know, you can't buy it too nice of a car because, you know, then he's going to know that you owe some more taxes. I mean, you, you kind of have this awkward relationship. Imagine having Thanksgiving dinner with that guy. You got to buy the turkey just a little bit too small. Right? Oh, I'm sorry. I wish I had more money to buy a bigger turkey for you, but I don't. You know, like it turns into this weird, awkward thing with Matthew, the tax collector. And and in fact, they knew that they were that way, and their friends knew that they were that way. And so it was really difficult for a tax collector to have any sort of meaningful relationships because the whole time the other person was wondering, are they setting me up to take me down? Some of you have somebody like this in your family. Are they setting you up to take you down? These holidays, you're going to sit at a table with somebody who might be the black sheep. They might be that person that you're kind of leery of because they've hurt you enough times before, and you're kind of cautious, and I'm not sure how to handle this. But Matthew, the tax collector, he basically turned his back on everyone in the name of greed. He wanted more money. And he knew he had to get it from his friends and his family and other people. And, and, and everybody knew that he was fleecing people. Oftentimes in the Bible, you'll see that people refer to sinners and tax collectors. You'll see that often. You'll see how people will talk about, well, yeah, there's sinners and then there's tax collectors. As if sinners in general is a definitely, you know, oh, man, they're, they're kind of a step down from society. But there's another depth of, of lowness you can go to. There's another depth that, that's called the tax collector. But yet the tax collector had a seat at the table. Jesus invited the tax collector to the table. I can tell you with all certainty, there was nothing that he did that earned his place at that table. The only reason he had a seat at the table was because Jesus loved him and invited him and gave him a seat at that table. He did not earn it. Sometimes we can think that we've earned that seat at the table with Jesus. We can think that through our behavior and our our performance that we've earned that seat. But the only reason you have a seat at the table is because Jesus has invited you and he loves you. It's his love that gives you a seat at the table. You know, Matthew, the tax collector... He kind of walked away from relationships. He certainly knew he was despised by the religious establishment. In one way, he kind of consciously made a decision to walk away from God because he knew what he was doing. He was hated by the religious establishment at the time. He probably believed in God on some level. He certainly believed in Jesus. But he had a hard time with the church. You know, you might be here today and you have a bit of a hard time with the church. And maybe you have a bit of a hard time with God. Maybe you believe in him a little bit, but you're not really sure where you sit in in the midst of all of this. Maybe you've lost that close relationship that you once had. Maybe you've made some bad decisions. You've done some things you shouldn't be doing. 
you've looked at some stuff you shouldn't have looked at. You've been saying things that you shouldn't have said and going places you shouldn't go. But you know, you can walk back to the table because Jesus didn't kick you out of the table. He's not the one that said, get out away from my table. We did it. When we walk away from God, it's kind of our decision. When we're sitting at the table and we realize that the actions that we have done have disqualified us from having this seat at the table, that's when the shame takes over. That's when we push away from the table. And that's when we say, we're not worthy to even be at this table. And I feel really guilty for even being sitting here. Somebody might be here this morning, you feel guilty for even being in church because you're like, oh, if you only knew what I did, I'm such a crazy tax collector level guy. You know, and, and you push away from the table and you kind of walk away from God because you know the gap between you and him. But see, God doesn't look at that gap. He says, no, I love you. Come have a seat. I'm not asking you to leave. Why are you leaving? Sometimes we walk away from God because we know what we've done. But God isn't walking away from us. And by the time we're far enough away from God, we start to wonder, did he push us away? I mean, did he abandon me? But he didn't. He didn't abandon you, and he still is calling you. And your seat isn't filled. It's waiting for you. It's waiting for you. You know, Simon the Zealot, have you ever met a zealous person? Yeah? I met a zealous person. Um, they were very zealous about climate change. Have you ever met, like, an extreme climate change zealous person? Oh, man, I tell you, they got all kinds of facts and figures bouncing around. And, and what about, like, CrossFit people? Holy cow, right? Yeah. Don't ask him about it. Hey, look, you're in shape. Do you work out? Oh, let me tell you. Oh, man. <laughs> you know, <laughs> no, stop telling me. You meet someone who's zealous about something, right? I mean, or, well, just turn on Facebook right now. People are zealous about stuff, huh? Yeah, there's, like, they're zealous about the donkey or the elephant right now or, or what they People moving to Canada, apparently. I don't know. But, you know, the, the election results were this week. And you turn on the social media, and there's some zealous people out there um, regarding the political situation in our country. And they're saying and doing things that you're like, whoa, buddy, I think you're going to need to delete that post here. <laughs> you don't want that haunting you for the rest of your life, you know. And, and there's some zealous people out there, right? Some zealous people out there. You see, Simon the Zealot, in that day, there was a, a class of people called the Zealots. And they were zealous about a few things, but what they were really zealous about was the um, independence, the, the Israeli independence and having their own country being independent from Roman rule. So the number one thing that they really hated were the Romans because the Romans were, had conquered the area and they had to kind of submit to this area, to, to, their, to their level, right? They had to kind of be underneath the Roman rule, but they, the, 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 the to, at the time they had almost like their own mini government functioning inside of the Roman government. It's kind of a, an interesting situation that they had going on there. And, but then the, the number two thing that they hated were tax collectors. And Simon's got a seat at the table next to Matthew. Awkward. That awkward. <laughs> it's interesting how two groups hated each other yet they're able to sit at the same table together. Two groups hated each other, but they were able to sit at the same table together. What would happen if we could sit at the same table together? You know, the, the po political season is crazy. But what would happen if the Democrats and the Republicans sat down together to reach the best objective for the common good of the United States? Man, we'd have some good things happen, I think. 
What would happen in a church if, if, if people who have different views on things sat down at the same table and said, hey, let's set our differences aside and let's work on our common goal? What would happen in your family if you sat down and said, hey, let's work together on a common goal? Jesus had two people who absolutely hated each other sitting at the same table together. And if Jesus can do it, and if the people will come together for that, we say around here all the time that we want to live like Jesus and share his love. I mean, we say that every week. And if we're going to live like Jesus and share his love, that means we need to get our tables ready and have a seat with somebody that maybe we have a disagreement with and share the love of Christ just like Jesus loved those two people and invited them both to sit at the adult table. We can sit at our adult tables, literally, figuratively, relationally with each other, both in the church and in your family. And you say, Matt, you don't understand. I can't do this. I know you can't. But Jesus can. There's a higher power that we answer to, but there's a higher power that can indwell inside of you. If you have Jesus living in your heart, you have this this Holy Spirit inside of you. You have his spirit in there and his power can help you get to that place. It's not easy. It's not comfortable. It's not fun. But you can get there. Your success story starts with a love story. For God so loved you that he made the ultimate sacrifice. He gave his life to let you have a relationship with him, with his, with his father, with God. He made that sacrifice. Can we make a sacrifice to help two people sit together at our table. See, your crazy family might have hurt you. Your crazy family might have wounded you. You might have real pain from a real person in your real family. And I'm not discounting the pain. I'm not discounting the wounds. It's real. It's real pain. It's real wounds. I'm not going to tell you they didn't do it and that your wounds aren't legitimate. But I want to say that if you're focused on Jesus Christ, he's asking you to sit down with a table with them. You may not agree on the issues. You may not agree on the details, but can you agree on the big picture? If you're both believers and if you're a believer in this church, we can unite around the cause of Jesus Christ. We can unite that he is God's son. We can unite that he gave his life for us to be able to have a relationship with God. We can find unity as a church around that issue. If your family is a family of Christians, you can find unity around that issue. Now, if you have a family that's mixed and some are believers and some aren't, you know the big picture of who Jesus is, and maybe they aren't believers yet. But you can find something that you can unite on. You can find something that you can find some common ground on. I want to challenge you to find that common ground. Don't battle it out on the details. Raise your level up a few thousand feet. Get up in some elevation in your thought process and find out what's your common goal. Believe it or not, I would say that everybody in politics has a few common goals. Everybody wants peace for our country. Everybody wants prosperity for our country. Everybody wants the poor and and those that are less fortunate to be well taken care of in our country. The fighting happens because we can't agree on the bottom rung issue on how to actually get it done. Well, very same thing in your home right now. There are things in your family that you're fighting about. 
I want to challenge you. Don't stoop down to that level. Don't get down that low and, and fight it out on the little details. Raise your perspective up. Raise it up a little bit. Look at the big picture. Are we leading people to Jesus or are we leading people to following our rules and list of how you're supposed to do it? Because if you're a believer this morning, and even if your family isn't a believer, you are leading them into a relationship with God. Don't put little petty tripping blocks for them. Don't, don't put a roadblock of, of something really low-level simple that stops them from seeing the love of Christ. Show them the love of Christ. Judas. <laughs> Judas Iscariot. This guy's rough, right? But you know what? I think he was one of the most successful people in the group. He's probably one of the smartest people in the group. In fact, I, I know he was connected, and I know that he was intelligent, because he was the treasurer of the group. So he had money experience, money management experience. At least out of everybody else in the group, he had the best. But, you know, when, when they said that he was betraying Jesus, he had relationship with the upper-level people in its day, the culture and the religious and the political system. He had connections and relationships with those people that allowed him to have that interaction. By the world standards, he was a treasure. He kept the money. He had the most connections. He was probably the most successful person by the world standards in that group. He had it all. He drove the BMW 7 Series car. He had the big mansion with the gated community and the, and the gated property. I mean, he's got, he's got all the wealth that you can think of maybe, right? He, who's a successful person in your mind? You look at somebody who's got the success in their life. He's probably, from the world's perspective, he probably had some level of success. But here's the thing. He's proof that you can hang around Jesus and not actually know him. You can be around church and not actually have a, be a, have a relationship with God. You can, you can, he literally witnessed the same things the other disciples witnessed, but he wasn't bought in. Going to church doesn't make you a Christian. Just like standing in your garage doesn't make you a car. It's the same concept. You can be around it, but not in it. You can be around Jesus, but not in it. You can witness things, but not be part of it. Judas wasn't bought in. Are you bought in? Are you bought into your relationship with God? Are you bought into your family, your church family? And are you bought into your personal family? You know, with the family get-together, there's always that one person that sits on the couch at the farthest away, pulls out their smartphone and starts trolling through probably nothing because they're physically there, but they're not there. You can join the family event, but literally be disconnected. You could be in the building with your family, but be disconnected from your family. If you're going to have impact in your family and help to show the love of Christ in your family, you have to get connected. You have to be committed. You have to be there. Be there with your family. Be there with your church family. Be there with your relationship with God. And the last one we're going to talk about this morning is Thomas. Oftentimes referred to doubting Thomas. He's a little skeptical. 
I mean, come on. I would be too. So here Thomas is. He watches Jesus get beaten. Like beaten. Like beaten. Like Guantanamo Bay beaten. Like, like nasty. And then he gets crucified. And he watches him die. And then he watches him get wrapped up and buried into a tomb. And he knows that Jesus is dead. Not kind of dead. Not almost dead. Not mostly dead. He's dead, dead. Dead, 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 dead. And days later, days later, his friends are telling him, hey, I saw Jesus. Yeah, sure you did, buddy. <laughs> You're delusional, you know. I don't know what you got, but I want some, you know. <laughs> like, he's getting delusional. There's no way. You didn't see him. I know he's dead. He's dead, dead. I saw him die. You don't understand. I had hopes and dreams that Jesus was going to fulfill something in my life. I thought that he was going to bring something into this world. I mean, he talked about bringing a kingdom and having rule and reign and dominion, but you can't do that if you're dead. You might have put your hope in Jesus, and you might have felt like he let you down. That's how Thomas felt. He felt like he'd been let down. And he just didn't believe it. He just didn't believe that, that Jesus was alive. And he said, yeah, sure thing, buddy. I'll believe it when I can feel the wounds in his hand and I can feel the wound in his side. When I can, when I can touch it and feel it, then I'll believe it. <laughs> he was a little bit skeptical. Jesus rose from the dead. If I don't touch the wounds, I won't believe. You know, sometimes doubt is good for us. Hear me out. Hear me out on this. I know, like, you think, Pastor, you shouldn't be telling me to doubt. <laughs> right? Like, shouldn't I have faith? Yeah, but I just want to challenge you. I want to, I want to say this, that sometimes doubt is an okay thing. I, th- I think that God is comfortable when we doubt him. It doesn't make him insecure. Like, like you know what I mean? God's not like, oh, shoot, they doubted me. Oh, man, what are we going to do here, guys? Like that, and he's not saying that. Because when Thomas doubted Jesus, and Jesus shows up on the scene, when he finally meet, they finally meet up, Jesus, as soon as he sees Thomas, it says that he says, hey, Thomas, come here, buddy. Come on, feel it. Is that, is that good? Yeah? How about this one? Here, put your hand in here. Do you feel that? You see, when, when Thomas doubted Jesus, Jesus drew him closer. When you doubt God, here's the thing. Your doubt should drive you deeper. Your doubt should drive you deeper. If you question something, dig it up. Look it up. Get into it. Research it. Read the Bible. Pray. Ask God to show you, is this real or not? Because he's faithful to do that. And when you doubt something and you're not quite sure, see, God wants you to know it in your knower. Like deep down inside of you, you know that you know that you know. And so if you are having a little bit of doubt in your faith, and you're having a little bit of doubt in God, God's not uncomfortable with that. He says, come on, come here, come close. I'll show you. I'll show you. I think he delights in showing. I think he delights in saying, oh, yeah, come here. God can handle your doubts. God can handle your doubts. You know, it's hard to believe in the goodness of God when things have gone badly. Because sometimes things do, they go badly. Things don't go well. We have issues. Some things are bumps in the road, but some things are, are major bumps in the road. 
I mean, it's, it's hard to believe in the goodness of God when you've had a miscarriage. It's hard to believe in the goodness of God when you've battled with infertility and you're watching your friends pop out babies left and right and you want one of your own. It's hard to believe that there's a good God when you're battling through this stuff. Or maybe you've been raped or abused or, or, or neglected or abandoned. It's hard to believe that, that God is good when you are going through something so real and, and raw. It, it's, it's so hard. But you see, it's an invitation to lean closer. It's an invitation from God. God comes to you and says, it's okay. Like, come here. Come here. Let me show you. Sometimes the pain happens in our life. And we push away from the table and say, God, you can't be good. But he's like, come back. I've got this chair. Let me love you. Let me show you. Let me care for you. I can't tell you that he's going to change your circumstances. But I can tell you that he will use all things together for good. If he can take a bloodstained cross into a tomb and make a tomb a place where he raises from the dead, he can take your pain and the death and what's been dead inside of your heart and he can bring that to life again. Because that's what he does. That's who he is. He brings dead things to life. You know, a few years ago, I went through a personal crisis. And I doubted the goodness of God in the midst of it. I was the associate pastor here at the church. And I was battling some anxiety, but I wasn't able to say it to anybody because I felt like I had to be successful in order to make this happen, in order to have a seat at the table. And so I didn't, I didn't share the anxiety that was building inside of me. I didn't share the struggle that I was facing. I had thought processes that were not from God, and they were driving me into a pretty dark place. And it drove me to a place where eventually I found myself curled up on the front seat of my car, bawling uncontrollably. I had anxiety that was overwhelming. My, my, my mind was spinning. I, I couldn't think. I couldn't focus. I could barely see. And I, had, I, I got my phone out and I called my wife and said, please come get me. I'm, this is where I'm at. I can't. And I shut off my phone. I didn't turn it back on for days. I crawled into bed for days. I thought I was having a heart attack. I, I didn't know what was happening. My whole world internally was melting. And as I lay in, in the bed of, in, of my house, shut down, not sure what's happening internally, I remember crying out to God and saying, God, what the heck is this? What are you doing to me? Don't you know what I'm doing for you? Why are you doing this to me? And I struggled, and I shook my fist at God, and I said things that I had to take back and I had to repent from. But I, I, I was angry with God, and I was angry with where I was at, and my mind was swimming, swimming, and I, and I, and I couldn't find my, foot, my, my footing anywhere. But here's the thing. God didn't rebuke me in that moment. He drew me closer. And he may not change your circumstances, but he can change your heart. He may not change what you've gone through, but he can change who you are inside. And by the grace of God, he's helped, he helped me pass that obstacle in my life. And I know, and I know in my knower, because I've wrestled with the doubt, and I know in my knower that he can help you through yours. And if you don't believe he can help you with yours, I understand, but I have enough faith for you too. I have enough faith that he can help you through yours. Because he helped me through mine.
Matthew eleven twenty eight. 28, it says that, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. And I don't know about you, but I've had some days where I've been weary and burdened. There are days that I have sat at home and said, God, I'm weary and I'm burdened and I need your rest. I believe today there are people that are here that are weary and burdened and God wants to bring rest to your soul. He wants to bring healing to your heart. It may not change your circumstances overnight, but he can change your heart in a moment. We serve a God that can bring miracles like that. It's a promise that he'll give you rest if you come to him. Maybe you're a Matthew and and you've rebelled and you've been isolated and alone. God has a seat for you. And he's saying, hey, it's not what you've done, but it's how much I love you. Come have a seat. Come find some rest. Or maybe, maybe you're Simon. And you've been zealous and you've been fighting and you've had conflict and and you've been, you, you, you find out that everybody else is wrong all the time and you're constantly fighting and struggling. But, but God says, it's not about that. Come. You've been weary and you're burdened. I've got a seat for you. I love you. Will you come find some rest? Maybe you're a Judas and you've been around Jesus your whole life. But you can't recall the time when maybe you said, yeah, I'm all in. You can go to church your whole life and not be all in with Jesus. And Jesus is saying today is your day. Come. You're weary and you're burdened. I've got a seat for you. Will you come find some rest? Or maybe you're a Thomas and you've had doubts and you've had questions. You want to believe that he's good and that he cares for you. And he wants to show you that he does. He doesn't push you away, but he draws you in. And he has a seat for you. And although you may be weary and burdened, he says, come on, sit down. I love you. I want to give you some rest. you guys stand with me? We're going to pray. You know, we have prayer teams that come to church specifically to pray with you. And they're here every week, and they, they're actually going to come and line up now along these, these wings on either side of the stage. And you might be the one who's weary and you need some rest. You might be the one who, who needs to give God control of your life. And maybe you've never made the decision to follow Jesus before. Or maybe you've made it and you walked away. Or maybe you've been hanging around church your whole life and you're just not sure if you've actually committed your life to him. They want to pray with you this morning. So church, will you just bow your heads with me? Jesus, thank you so much that we get to sit at the table. Not because of my success, but because of your sacrifice. God, you gave your life on a cross 
And in you, every story isn't necessarily a success story, but it is a love story. So God, you love us and you have loved us and you continue to love us. I want to pray for those who are weary and burdened this morning. They're burdened with confusion or isolation or or doubt, frustration, wondering if you could even love them. This morning, God, I ask that you would just speak to their heart, every congregation's heart right now. But tell them what you want them to do with what you're saying to them. Tell them right now, God, do they need to reconcile a relationship in their family? Do they need to set down some of their zealousness? Do they need to find the common ground and and, and build a bridge and to build relationships so they can share your love? God, God, what do you want them to do right now in their life? I pray that you'd reveal yourself to them. And this morning, if it's time for someone to get reconciled with Christ, I pray that they would come forward and, and receive prayer from our prayer teams. God bless you. Have a wonderful week. Amen. Take what I have known and break.